Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy. So I know over here in New York, it is an unseasonably and wonderfully warm day, so I'm feeling very chill and laid back. How are you How are you doing down in D.C.? Oh, man. It's, it's equally lovely down here in D.C. It's a balmy, what, 60 or something. I'm seeing some of the, you know, bulbs in my neighbor's yard start to kind of like peek oh, up through the through the so i'm going to be through the thick of pollen season soon so i'm kind of just like bracing <laughs> myself for that but in any event it's a it's a relatively sleepy week um at the supreme court there's only you know marginal shadow docket activity in some um vaccine mandate cases that we're not really going to get too much into because you know the court's not hearing oral arguments or deciding any opinions this week other than a conference later in the week so I think we're just going to take stock of the SCOTUS sweepstakes that are unfurling in Washington as of late. I love that. And and yes, this is an area where it does seem like there's been some action of recent days. Um, you know, we've we've heard some reports that the three front runners um, in the sweepstakes, uh, D.C. Circuit Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, South Carolina District Judge J. Michelle Childs and California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger have hired advisors to kind of help them through the process, which I kind of take it as like, you know, things are rolling along. This is getting more serious. I know we talked off air that, you know, uh, Biden mentioned that he is going to plan to have a, a nominee by the end of February, although it's February 17th and it's a short month. So see how that actually happens. <laughs> Right. I, you know, when he said that um, he was going to plan to announce someone by the end of the end of February, I thought, you know, that's a pretty conservative timeline. But here we are, middle of the month, the shortest month of the year, and still no word on any meetings with the White House because it's 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 fairly typical for, you know, the Supreme Court contenders to meet with the president who interviews them before an, an, a nomination actually takes place. And it, right now, we still seem to be. Um, unless things are happening behind closed doors that I don't know about, it still seems to be in kind of the jockeying, lobbying, soft power wielding phase of things. You mentioned the advisors that were reportedly brought on um, to help some of the potential contenders here. Um, there's some reporting in the Washington Post about House Majority Whip uh, Jim Clyburn's kind of persistent efforts um, to lobby for you know the 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 district judge from his home state, uh, J. Michelle Childs. Someone that we haven't really discussed as much as potentially some of the other candidates. Um, so, Natalie, I know you've kind of taken a look at at her record as a federal district judge down there in the state of South Carolina. And I'm curious to kind of maybe learn a little bit more for our listeners who perhaps aren't as familiar with her record. Yeah. So uh, I think, you know, one of the most notable things about Judge Childs that stands out to me and to many is that she doesn't have the traditional Ivy League law school background that so many recent justices have had. Um, born in Detroit, raised in South Carolina. Um, she got her law degree and master's in 1991 from the University of South Carolina. Um, she's had, you know, good long career private practice um, where she actually became the first black partner at her firm. Uh, she worked as the Department of Labor deputy director. She worked for the state's workers' compensation committee. And then she was elected in 2006 to the state circuit court. So she come, come, comes and brings, um, I think, a very different background and in, in that way, perspective 
potentially to the court. Um, and I think that has garnered a lot of attention and, you know, is seen as a potential benefit to her as a pick. Um, she was eventually named the chief judge of the state criminal court, and she's led an effort to clear case backlogs. Um, so she's really coming at this, um, you know, from a very different perspective, I think, from uh, what a lot of the other justices currently on the court have come from. And kind of feels in line with, you know, what we've seen historically from some justices who were much more, you know, of not kind of like the same Ivy League pedigree out of the DOJ or, you know, uh, attorney general's office, uh, you know, resume, essentially. So so I think, you know, for, for Judge Childs, that seems to be a bit of a boon. As you mentioned, she's got the support um, from Congressman Clyburn. She also has um, some bipartisan support. Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator Tim Scott, both of South Carolina, have also expressed, um, you know, their inclination to back her. In, in fact, Senator Lindsey Graham said something like along the lines of like, if she was nominee, he, he bet he could get like 10 Republicans to, you know, to, to, to vote for her, which is pretty significant given the current, you know, uh, division of, of the Senate. Um, so there's that. And I think, you know, those all seem to be kind of within the plus column here, right, for Judge Childs. Certainly, if President Biden is interested not just in diversifying the demographic makeup of the Supreme Court, but also just the educational and career backgrounds of the justices themselves. As you mentioned, you know, she doesn't come from that kind of boilerplate, like elite, elite of the elite in terms of the legal profession from from where um, a lot of the recent members of the court have come from. But, you know, she's you mentioned she's had this 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 judicial experience both on the state and federal courts. Um, at both the you know the 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 district court and the trial court and the appellate court uh, level. So can you what can you tell us about you know some of these cases that presided that she's presided over and, and maybe some of the more notable ones that could uh, potentially um, you know make an impact on the the president and the senators reviewing her record. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of notable cases, um, you know, I think one that stands out is that pre-Obergefell, from the Supreme Court Obergefell case, uh, she actually ruled on South Carolina's refusal to recognize the marriage of two women who had been legally wed in the District of Columbia. And she ruled that that was unconstitutional a year before the Supreme Court basically made a similar ruling in a different case um, in Obergefell. Um, So I think that was a pretty notable one that that will be talked about if she was the nominee. Um, You know, she also recently ruled um, in favor of a group of older black voters when she struck down a state rule requiring voters to sign mail-in ballots in front of a witness. Now, that case, I believe, was actually turned, uh, reversed um, at the Supreme Court level, but it was a big voting case, which we've seen, you know, kind of, bubbling up and popping up uh, lately in the Supreme Court. So something of note for her. And I also saw that she got a bit of a ding um, from some progressives over a labor ruling of hers that potentially she wasn't as friendly to the labor side of the case as um, they had potentially liked. So um, whereas some uh, nominees could potentially see attacks from the right, Maybe this is a case of some progressives also being a little bit hesitant if she doesn't have that fully developed federal district court record. So just to kind of play devil's advocate and maybe highlight some of the potential um, areas of attack for such a nominee 
that's one thing to potentially consider, right? No, you're completely right on that. And, um, you know, there was that ruling, and I think both some rulings along the employment line and uh, along the line against criminal defendants, as well as her work in private practice where she actually um, represented management in labor and employment cases, that has been brought up several times by pro- progressive groups as, uh, you know, a potential ding to her profile as, you know, a potential nominee for the Supreme Court seat. Um, so, so, you know, pushback here seems to be along that front for Judge Childs. Let's turn now to one of the other rumored candidates for the Supreme Court seat, and that is California Associate Justice Leandra Kruger. Now, if uh, Judge Childs is known for kind of breaking the mold of those Ivy League credentials, uh, Justice Kruger, not not U.S. Supreme Court, but California Supreme Court Justice uh, Leandra Kruger, she fits that mold perfectly and, and has the resume that a lot of recent um, nominees to the Supreme Court have. That is, you know, she she went to Yale Law School where she was the first black uh, female editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal. And she went on to serve as the, the, the first black female principal deputy solicitor general under President Barack Obama where, you know, she helped represent the, the United States government in the Supreme Court. And in that role, she argued more cases before the, the Supreme Court than any other black woman to date. So something that she definitely boasts on her resume is not just this judicial experience at the appellate level, but actually advocacy. And, you know, uh, the, the, a lot of the current members of the court actually have that, those same bona fides as having worked in the Solicitor General's office. Um, you know, Justice Elena, Elena Kagan, of course, having been Solicitor General herself. So if Biden is looking for someone in the mold of some recent justices while also bringing that demographic diversity to the bench, uh, Justice Leandra Kruger is certainly someone he could look at and his uh, backers, I understand, are, are making those those very same arguments. Natalie, you sent me a, a, an interesting piece from David Latt kind of underscoring the arguments that a lot of uh, her proponents are, you know, former former colleagues and, and, and clerks, et cetera, are making. And the other one is just that she's pretty young compared to yeah. um, some of the other names being considered. She's 45 years old. So, you know, that would make her uh, several years younger than the next youngest so-called shortlister. Um, and that is possibly a plus if Biden is looking long-term at the Supreme Court and hoping for someone who's going to influence the direction of the law for many decades to come. And and, and younger and younger nominees is something that we have been seeing as of late, um, especially when it came to uh, President Donald Trump's judicial appointees. Uh, I think Justice Amy Coney Barrett was in her 40s when she was nominated to the Supreme Court. Um, and so that could be something that the president is considering as well, um, she is considered more of a moderate um, than potentially some of the other progressives being floated for the seat. Uh, she has been known to split with some of her uh, democratically appointed colleagues on the California Supreme Court in certain criminal areas of the law. And um, you know, if 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 Biden is potentially looking for more of a moderate justice, that could. Um, you know, uh, gather the votes and the support of certain Republican senators. That could be an area that he brings up, um, or just you know, strategically speaking, uh, uh, on a on a extremely conservative Supreme Court right now, 
a more moderate justice along the lines of a, of a Kagan could be seen as a strategic effort to potentially come up for some areas of compromise. So that's kind of the, the, the profile. How about in terms of her, her record, either as a judge or as an advocate, you know, anything notable that might come up during a potential nomination hearing? Well, there is one case that, you know, could prove a bit of an albatross if Biden is looking to, to curry a lot of Republican votes, which we should remind listeners he doesn't actually need. Uh, but in any event, yeah, she's come under some criticism for a case that she argued back when she was in the Solicitor General's office in 2011. It was um, an employment discrimination case brought by uh, an employee of a religious school. And um, the government had argued that this religious school could be held liable for employment discrimination, notwithstanding the existence of a legal doctrine in the lower courts called the ministerial exception. Now, the ministerial exception the lower courts had held basically shielded these um, churches from legal liability for any kind of employment practices when it came to their ministers. The idea being under the First Amendment, the government can't tell the church who to hire and who to fire. That's, you know, a violation of, you know, religious liberty interests of those churches. Now, um, arguing for the federal government in the Supreme Court, um, now Justice Kruger had made the argument that um, the ministerial exception shouldn't apply to this particular case and that this employee should be able to sue through the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for discrimination um, in light of her disability. Uh, now, this was an argument that was pretty much rejected wholesale by the justices of the Supreme Court, who expressed a little bit of consternation over how narrowly um, the, uh, the the Justice Department was interpreting the ministerial exception. In particular, they were saying that it didn't have anything to do with the First Amendment at all, and that's something that uh, you know kind of gave even some of the liberal justices on the Supreme Court, such as Justice Elena Kagan, a lot of pause. Now, she would end up losing the case 9-0, and the Supreme Court would officially recognize the doctrine, the ministerial exception doctrine and rule for this religious institution. And that particular case has become, become kind of a bugbear for um, Justice Kruger in terms of her support from potential Republicans, again, not that she needs any, um, who consider her to be, who basically are a little bit skeptical of her uh, her record when it comes to some of these religious liberty issues. But, you know, we were just talking about maybe some of the areas where Judge Childs could come under some criticism, and this is certainly one for, for Justice Kruger. Yeah, I feel like often, you know, notable reversals uh, get kind of parsed at, um, at the nomination stage. We actually, uh, I know we haven't talked about um, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, um, much today, you know, we, we kind of went a little bit more in depth in, a, in an earlier episode. Um, if you didn't catch that, please go back and listen. Um, but she actually uh, kind of came into the news recently this week because uh, of a bit of a reversal, right, Jimmy? That's right. It was actually last week that, or, you know, shortly after we recorded last week's episode on Friday, that the, that the D.C. Circuit reversed the decision that uh, Judge Jackson had issued back in 2020 when she was a judge on the federal district court in Washington. So this was, you know, it's a wrongful death suit against um, the Washington Metropolitan Transit Agency, the, the DC Metro, basically. Um, and Judge Jackson had 
effectively ruled in favor of the agency and thrown out the case from uh, the family of this uh, man who uh, died in 2013 at a, at a metro stop uh, when he was heavily intoxicated and fell into the gap between the, the station wall and the platform. And uh, Judge Jackson was reversed last week by, the, by a unanimous panel of the D.C. Circuit, where she now sits, who held that she had applied um, the wrong legal standard in this uh, tort action. Now, you know, I, I spoke to some attorneys about this who said that you know, there's more that meets the eye in this particular case. It was a fairly complicated tort case uh, you know, involving what's called the contributory negligence rule. Um, and you know, these types of reversals are, are inevitable when you're talking about a district court judge who has heard hundreds of cases and issued even more rulings. Some of them are bound to get overturned at, at the appellate level. I mean, this is something that comes up when we're talking about uh, nominations, but uh, potentially unfortunate timing for Judge Jackson, but here we are. Yeah, you gotta, the, the timing of it, I think, is is the bigger thing, just because things seem to be gaining steam here and, and things are rolling along, so this is getting probably a bit more attention than it obviously normally would. Right, and, um, you know, uh, people I spoke to said it was unlikely to have any effect on her chances of being nominated, and I think that's fair, um, but like, you know, maybe some recent uh, nomination battles that we've seen, reversals can become a subject of scrutiny from opponents of the nominee. Um, Justice Gorsuch, now Justice Gorsuch, was uh, actually in the middle of his confirmation hearing when the Supreme Court unanimously reversed him in a ruling about um, Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act. And uh, he was shortly asked about it thereafter by Democratic members of the panel, in which he was forced to basically concede that, you know, the, uh, he was applying circuit law as it, as it was in the Tenth Circuit at the time when he held that, you know, the, this law, the IDEA law, um, you know, kind of lessened, narrowed the obligations on school districts to provide education for students with disabilities. We're not going to get into the case, but suffice it to say that... Um, uh, he, he he said, "I will accept the Supreme Court's decision." <laughs> um, of course, he was he was pretty much forced to. But uh, <laughs> uh, these things do come up, and, and optically speaking, they're not they're not ideal from the uh, from the nominee's perspective. Um, but uh, it, it, you know, this is all part of the conversation as we're kind of learning a little bit more about uh, what's happening behind the scenes. And I guess, Natalie, I I would just say, you know, I don't have any insights into who's the front runner and who is kind of falling by the wayside in terms of their nomination. But my understanding is that, you know, these three candidates um, specifically are still very much in the running. And I suspect that a lot of it's going to come down to when that meeting um, happens, when these nominees, potential nominees are able to, you know, sit down face to face with, um, you know, the president. These things can be less scientific than a lot of people think. Sometimes it's just who maybe gets along who has a better conversation who you know what's where's the president's gut feeling going and that's certainly what happened you know in the in the early 90s when uh justice Breyer himself was considered the front runner for uh clinton's first supreme court vacancy but the meeting reportedly uh did not go very well and and by contrast he was very smitten with then dc circuit judge ruth bader ginsburg um so she ultimately emerged as his uh, nom first nominee to the Supreme Court, and uh, 
that's just sometimes how these things go. It's definitely a shifting landscape, right? Right up until the nominee is officially announced. Um, Jimmy, I thought you had a really interesting article, actually. I know we've talked about these three frontrunners, um, but you had an interesting article on the kind of the longer list of potential judges that might be look, being looked at um, during this process. Uh, any of those that you just kind of want to briefly mention or, or, or note? Well, one of them actually was kind of um, sent th- to the bench via the same judicial pipeline as Judge Jackson was um, when she was elevated to the D.C. Circuit, and that's um, uh, Judge Candace Jackson Akiwumi of the Seventh Circuit. Um, a lot of people are saying her name as Candace, but I happen to speak to a colleague on that, or a, a former colleague of hers on that story and confirmed for me that it's actually Candace. Um, so, she is someone who, similarly to Judge Jackson, um, has you know a background as a public defender. She was a federal public defender in Chicago, um, and she could potentially earn a closer look from the president if there is, in fact, a fourth uh, shortlister out there. She boasts some of these same sterling credentials, undergraduate degree from Princeton, law degree from Yale Law School. And in her, you know, decade in the federal public defender's office in Chicago, she helped spearhead some some pretty big cases. Um, one of the uh, the director of the, the the federal defender's office in the in the Northern District of Illinois, um, who worked with her for for about a decade, basically told me that she helped lead the defense of those caught up in what was called the Stash House cases in uh, Chicago. This was a you know a controversial law enforcement program where federal agents were luring suspects into robbing fake drug houses before bringing this slew of serious federal charges against them. And uh, Judge Jackson Akiwumi basically was leading in a, a constitutional defense against those, also pointing out that all of the defendants were people of color. And, you know, the, the judge actually didn't uh, side with uh, the defense on some of these constitutional questions, but according to the, the uh, defender that I spoke with for this story, the judge was simple, sympathetic enough that the prosecution entered into these very favorable deals. So that's that's potentially one. There's you know other names as well. There's a Second Circuit judge by the name of Eunice Lee, who was also recently confirmed to the Federal Appeals Court bench. She spent many years as, similarly as a public defender. Um, actually, Eunice Lee, interestingly enough, was not a federal trial court public defender, but um, was working in New York city's office of the appellate defender representing indigent defendants at all levels of new york's court system and also in habeas proceedings in the federal courts um and and so that could potentially give her a little bit of a different perspective um there working in at least um the state court system as well as the federal one so those are just a couple names i wanted to 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 float out um certainly as you say a shifting landscape and uh we will obviously have the deep dive on whoever emerges as uh, President Biden's first Supreme Court pick. On the edge of my seat here to see who the pick <laughs> will be and how it goes. Um, but yeah, I think that just about does it for our kind of, uh, you know, Briar retire wash Supreme Court sweepstakes here. Um, before we leave, though, uh, you know, I think we were talking there. There was a bit of um, kind of sad news uh, from the Supreme Court community. Um, this week, Walter E. Dellinger III, a uh, you know, prominent Supreme Court lawyer at O'Melveny and Myers, uh, who was served as acting solicitor general under President Bill Clinton, died um, at the age of 80 on Wednesday, or at least we found out about it on Wednesday. I actually don't know for sure when, when it happened. It was, it was Wednesday. Yeah, no, he was a 
he was what a lot of people in their tributes to him have called a lion of the law. He was a huge figure in um, the Democratic uh, legal establishment here in D.C. He was a uh, a titan at um, Duke University School of Law for over five decades. Um, he, as you mentioned, was the acting solicitor general under Clinton, argued a bunch of cases there, and was just generally a, a, a very respected member of the Supreme Court bar and legal community writ large. He was a North Carolina native who kind of rose through the ranks of uh, you know the, the, the legal academic world and ultimately um, became a, 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 a top lawyer in the Justice Department during the Clinton administration in the 1990s. Um, he is someone who, you know, during his many his decades long career, has mentored a lot of the big names in the in the up and coming uh, legal world. Some of the, some sitting judges, like on the D.C. Circuit and elsewhere, um, and I think it's probably a testament to his influence that uh, two justices actually released statements on his passing. Um, uh, yesterday, uh, Justice Elena Kagan said he gave the best advice when I became Solicitor General, sharing everything he knew about the job. He was generous and kind. He made everyone he felt with feel 10 feet tall. He was a phenomenal lawyer with an endless string of accomplishments, but he always gave the credit to others. I'll miss his sense of humor, his clear-eyed optimism, and his passionate engagement with the world of law. You know, it's funny, Natalie, I was I was researching about Dellinger's career um, for my story uh, yesterday about his passing, and I came across kind of a, a funny interview that he gave to Scotus Blog in 2015 when he describes, you know, one of his toughest days as a Supreme Court advocate. He was back in the Solicitor General's office um, where he was acting SG, and he was about to give his argument in a big uh, case involving the Line Item Veto Act called Reigns versus Byrd when the Supreme Court it hands down another case that he had argued, Clinton versus Jones, and he says they basically just tore all of his arguments apart. Justice Stevens kind of reading his decision from the bench just said, and the Solicitor General got this wrong and that wrong, et cetera. And so he's already very flustered. And then he proceeds to you know, give his argument in the case Reigns v. Byrd, and you know, he, he's asked a question and he responds, Justice O'Connor, and then <laughs> he says in his interview with Scotus Block, any answer that begins Justice O'Connor when the question was asked by Justice Ginsburg is a terrible answer. So, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. A pretty bad day if you're a SCOTUS advocate. Um, but it just goes to show, you know, even the lions of the law have, uh, you know, it can be lambs, at least on some days. Everyone he, has he, a bad day. Everyone has an off day. You, you know, know he... He, he had better luck in Reigns versus Byrd. He won that case seven to two. Um, he was obviously reversed in Clinton versus Jones, uh, uh, ruled against in Clinton versus Jones, nine to oh, but um, just kind of a funny, lighthearted moment. And that's something that a lot of you know, people who, who knew him pointed out that he, he, could, he was quick with a, a quip. Well, our thoughts um, certainly go out to his family and loved ones. Um, Jimmy, I think that just about does it for us today. Thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for, for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank contributing reporter, Andrew Strickler. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listening to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. No, please write us a review. <laughs>